Hi, everybody. We have our beloved Gates McKibben back with us today. And this time, we're going to be talking about a work that she held back for about 20 years, a series of four books that were directly given to her, you might say, inspired in a very similar way to Joan Grant. And the writing is a, a similar style to Joan Grant's Winged Pharaoh, but also, I would say, a cross between that and Anastasia. And so for any of you who have read either of those series of books, you'll understand what I'm saying. There is a cleanliness and a truth and a purity that comes through these words. It's very striking and the story is very compelling. So let's go to Gates now. Gates, so good to see you back with us. So happy to be back. Thank you very much. I have to say, I'm going to hold them up one at a time. Um, I'm halfway through the third of the four books and the series I'll show everybody so we can get an idea of what's going on. And then I'm going to have you talk about how this came through. The first one is called One Beyond Time. Okay. And the second one, it's just an amazing love story. Love 24 AD. Okay. And then this is the one I'm on right now, which is Hope 120 AD. All right. And then the final one, which I have, I have no knowledge of, I have not read is give. And that is 1671 AD. So first of all, I just want to introduce the notion um, that you're talking about here, which in the first book, we're talking about the creation or splitting of twin flames into two separate entities in the very beginning, the first book, which takes place in Atlantis. And then we go on to where these people have lived other lifetimes and they come together upon occasion and what happens when twin flames meet. And that's what the series of books is about under different conditions, both sublime and challenging. So mm -hmm. I want to ask you, Gates, how did this information initially come through you? How did you feel about it? And why did you wait 20 years to put it out? <laughs> Great questions. Um, I have for about 30, 35 years been writing, um, serving as a scribe for spirit. So I'm informed whenever they're ready to send down new messages. I never really know what the content will be. I do understand the process, which is that I have to clear my mind, um, open myself up to whatever I hear, um, intuitively, and then write. So this process began the same way that a lot of my other much more specific channeled messages began. It's grab a pen and paper, sit down, here we go. And I said, okay. We're talking now, old school, pen and paper. Not pen and paper. Not all of this. I know all of this is written pen and paper. Oh my because God. I'm a terrible typist. And so if I try to do it with a keyboard, I end up uh, making mistakes and then I lose the energy. I lose the frequency of the channeling. So I sat down with a pad of paper and pen and out of the blue began writing a story about Atlantis. And it was a fantastic story. It was a phenomenal story. And it felt like science fiction to me. I haven't read really anything about Atlantis. I didn't know at the time much about it. And it began with an androgynous being living in Atlantis, making the choice to be transformed into two complementary beings in physical embodiment, in human embodiment, a male and a female who are exact. They're, they're precisely the same, except for there being one is a male and one is a female. Other than that, they're exactly the same. So that sets up the story for the four books. Because then this couple who start out being identical have to deal with earthly reality. And therefore, the, the pure complementarity of the masculine and feminine they embody begins to be challenged almost immediately. 
Who are they in that context? How do they make choices? How do they retain the incredible love and connection that they started out with? Can they even do it? And that is the overarching arc or theme of the four books. But honestly, Regina, when I started, I had no idea that this would become four books. I was thinking it was rather bizarre that I was writing this fictional, I thought, narrative about Atlantis. But being the person I am, I went with it because I know nothing else to do, but (laughs) honor the request of spirit. (laughs) Well, I have to say now, if you go into hermetic um, texts, their understanding, the, the way they put that story forth is one of a twin ray uh, that's very similar. There's a, there's a soul seed and that it splits into two and it journeys throughout history as male and female. Now they're much more strict in the interpretation that one, once you begin a path as female, you can't, you can't uh, deter from that and become male at any point in time, which other traditions and I tend to disagree with. I think you can delve into and have the experiences of the other, but stay dominantly one aspect of the ray. And so that that's how they would put it forward in their understanding. And Sheila Gillette's channeling say the exact same thing. We split into these and we ultimately reunite when we've worked through all these challenges and can find that perfect resonance once again, having traveled all of the opportunities and challenges of the masculine and feminine. And so you're doing, you do a beautiful job with this. Now I have to ask you when it was coming through, are these what you were given or perceive as your own past lives or a story of how it works? I didn't have a sense that these were my own past lives. Um, In fact, when I was writing, the process was very similar to what it normally is. I don't even have a conscious awareness of what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. The words just land on the page. And I can go for hours and hours and hours, and my hand doesn't even get cramped from the writing. It's a, it's a fluid process. My left brain, my rational mind, is pretty much, pretty almost completely unplugged. And so the process I had when I was writing these was literally that of someone taking dictation, almost mindlessly taking dictation. But then I had the challenge of getting all of that into the computer. (laughs) So I um, used voice recognition software. And then that process was most fascinating because I would start with the material, which I honestly did not remember and begin reading it out loud so that I could then end up with a computer document um, of the story. And as I was reading it, it was as if I were reading the story for the first time. I would be going, oh my God, I can't believe this. You know, I mean, not out loud, but in my mind, I was reading an adventure story that I knew nothing about, that I had never heard before. And and I felt more like a reader than someone who had actually experienced those stories. I can't tell you for sure that I was the protagonist, Grace, in these stories. I don't have a high level of confidence that they are about my past lives. But these stories are archetypes. We all go through a very similar process, which as you so beautifully stated earlier, it's really about the split into complementary genders. The experiences we have trying to maintain the divinity and balance of that complementarity while living on the earth plane. How do we do that? And how do we ultimately then with our divine complement return to oneness with source? Because that we all derive from that oneness. So that's really what this story is. It's about um, 
starting out as one, splitting, moving through lifetimes, and then hopefully ultimately returning to the the the, the oneness that we all seek. Yes. And you do you do this so beautifully. But what's so interesting, I guess you can say that we understand it's imbued with spirit because of the pristine quality of the words. They they're such a high octave which you did the same thing with epic steps. And so clearly, whoever is speaking to you, whoever the source, the guides, your higher self, et cetera, it seems to me of a very, to be of a very refined nature. And I think that's what people resonate so strongly with. So let's start with book one, one beyond time and where the story begins, because we're going to try to encapsulate all four of them in this one interview and encourage people start where you wish. They're all wonderful standalones, but it's good to start at the beginning. One beyond time begins with this split. And the first question Luke and Grace face is because he lands in a temple for the divine masculine, and she lands in a temple for the divine feminine, they're not even allowed to be together once they take embodiment in the two genders, because they don't have any familiarity with what it means to be in a gender. So they need to be in these temples to understand the implications of being a gendered human being, and then come to terms with whether or not they want to remain in the temples or leave and um, come together. And I know at first it was hard for me to fathom, well, why wouldn't they want to be together? But of course, being in the temples, they were their divinity you know, as the separate genders was being nurtured so beautifully. Um, it was a comfortable, loving place for each one of them to be. They came together at night in their sleep. Their spirits came together and merged because the, the, the driving force behind their existence was to merge, always is to merge. And so that's what they did. And ultimately, Luke comes to the uh, I'll, I'll tell you this, spoiler alert, Luke comes to the temple where she is and says, I can't live without you. We have to be together. And she said, she agrees. That then thrusts them into Atlantis during its most corrupt period. And interesting uh, because you hadn't read about Atlantis and you didn't personally know about some of the things that I've read about or experienced or interviewed people on. You weren't aware of any of this when you wrote this. And it's interesting when people read it to see um, how this has, has come to public knowledge since you wrote those 20 years ago, the notion of genetic engineering um, and the control of the species and such. And that's in the book. It's in the book. And I, I, I was surprised when, it, um, when I read it after I wrote it. Um, I was told, just so everyone can understand, I was told about 35 years ago when I started doing the channel writing, um, it I was advised not to read anything, really anything metaphysical, anything channeled, anything uh, new age, really, because the concern was that I would not trust the purity of the information I was bringing down. I would think, oh, I read that somewhere that must have come from my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I haven't read anything. It, you know, I'm a tabula rasa. I'm a pure slate when it comes to this writing. <laughs> um, and it was only later, and especially um, after you reviewed the first book for me, Regina, um, I asked you if, I hope you don't mind my saying this to give me a reality check. <laughs> you know, <laughs> is this is this something is this on track? Is it something that should be introduced to the world? What advice do you have for me? And you are the one who said, "Oh my gosh, this is emblematic of a lot of what's already out there. Um, it aligns with it." And that was the first I even knew that um, it affirmed a great deal of the wisdom that has been passed down about Atlantis and what happened. 
Okay. I, now, I didn't know that that's why you went ahead and thought, let's do this thing and embraced it because it was already there. And you went ahead and started editing like crazy after that. And boom, within months, all four of them were put into production and available on Amazon. So i thrilled that I was part of that process. And I've had other friends read them as well. And one, one friend who is a voracious reader and similar to me has read all these other, all these other books, including Joan Grant's works and all of the Anastasia books. We both had the exact same feeling. It inspired us in the same way to understanding a higher potential of humanity, as well as the deepest challenges of humanity. So let's go on a little bit further into uh, the story of of Grace and Luke, okay? And and go through, kind of hopscotch quickly through book number one and where they end up before we go to number two, Love uh, 24 AD. Grace has the ability to, um, to hear plants speak to her. And, and inform her of their healing qualities. So she sets up a healing center and then multiple healing centers um, throughout Atlantis that enable people um, to take responsibility for their own health. One of the issues in Atlantis is that the technology had been developed so thoroughly, um, people could, could um, behave could, could treat their bodies very badly and then go in and with technology have all of that reversed. Ooh, sounding and, familiar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And her perspective was being responsible on a day-to-day basis for your health. I'll help you do that. So she set up healing centers. They began, uh, then they established kiosks selling uh, healthful soups to people and giving it away to the people who couldn't afford it. Luke entered an institute as a researcher and began to discover that how they claimed to be doing the research had been extremely corrupted. He gained evidence of that. And the story then unfolds when they have to make the choice. And I say they because their partnership was so loving and so integrity-based. And he said, this is our decision. Am I going to go forth with this documentation, this impeccable documentation of the, the corruption that has occurred at this research institute? They agreed that he should knowing that he was putting himself in harm's way and could easily be killed um, as a result. And lost, of and lost to her, but they had to look at it from a point of view of integrity and what was the highest and best good for all. Exactly. And, and, in, and issues of integrity are woven throughout all of the books. This is, this is a big theme of having to make the hard choices, um, which Interestingly, I interviewed a man that I call the Druid recently, and he was talking about very simply, I think in one of his homilies, that when we're looking at how uh, kind of evil, for lack of a better word, starts manifesting into our world, it starts with something as benign as not knowing, not doing what we know to be the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning. And you address this over and over in these books. That is, in fact, the arc of the overriding arc of the four stories. You know, two two questions. Do they stand in their integrity, facing lots of challenges? How do they do that? And do they ultimately manage to live in love? Um, Does love survive the incredible obstacles, detours, corruptions that are thrust upon them as they navigate through history, throughout history together. Um, And they have, because their love never is compromised. In fact, it never really um, feels that it is at all limited in comparison to what it was when they were first created. 
Um, it remains so pure and so true. And it's because of that love that they have the strength to stand in their integrity. Yes. Together. And, yes. And what's interesting is there, there are big gaps in time, obviously, between these lives where they've lived other lives with other people, learned other things. And these are simply focusing on the times these two have come back together. And there's always this instant recognition, but there's always the theme in the books, each of the books that they connect in dream time, even if they're apart, they meet up in dream time and they share the relationship in dream time and develop it oftentimes before they're ever together in the physical world too. So that's another theme that goes through is how we could better utilize dream time for sure. I hope you're enjoying this video because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to insider commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks. Now, let's not tell the end of any of these stories no. because we don't want to have a total spoiler alert um, here. One big spoiler alert. Let's go to the second story where they meet up again um, in, was it 24 or 25 AD? 24, 24 AD. Yeah. yeah, 24 AD, where they meet up again in Celtic times and in, in the Celtic lands. And that's a, it's a very beautiful story of love. I remember all the scents, what their huts and homes looked like, how it, the, the bedding felt when they were sleeping in it. It's so descriptive. I still, I remember all of it. So let's have you tell us about what happens when they get together the next time. She is the daughter of a powerful um, healer who lives in a community of, of women healers that works at such a high vibrational frequency, most people can't even see it. Um, a lot of people who travel through the forest will, will go past it and not even realize it's there. So this is, you know, th these are pristine um, servants of the divine in terms of, of the healing process. And he is the son of a, tri a tribal chieftain who understands from the beginning that the Celtic culture is being threatened from afar um, by forces of a civilization that has developed um, a military and engineering technology that far surpasses what the tribes can create. And, and his question then is, how do we hold things together um, in the face of what he sees to be certain invasion? So this story takes place during the Roman invasion of Britannia. And what happens after Luke and Grace come together again and how do they navigate and how especially does her mother and his father, how do they all come together to try to find common ground to carve out a, a, a path to peace, even though it's clear the Romans are going to win any conflict with the tribes. How can they maintain as much of the culture as possible? How can they make sure that masses of men are not destroyed in the defense of the country and the culture. And so this becomes, the, the story here becomes in the face of invasion, military invasion, in order to expand power and wealth on the part of ruling nations, what do, what do you do? How do you, how do you address that? Yes, and what is, what is true strength? Is true strength facing them on the battlefield until everybody is obliterated? Or is it finding a way to negotiate a peace so that as much of the culture as possible can be preserved? I have to say, I loved that book. 
Um, and part of the reason was not just the love story of the, these two souls connecting, but it was really of a kind of respect and love that the wisdom of the Celts were able to achieve in working with the Romans. And um, I won't go into it, but a relationship that transpires there that transcends all of this. Because again, this is the thing missing. It, it gets me teary even to think of it. This kind of wisdom is, seems to be almost completely lacking in today's society, where we understand what a challenge is. And we, we can't humbly say, you know, we may not be able to overturn this now, but what can we do to work toward that end together? We don't ask those kinds of questions. And you do, or your story does in this book. I won't attribute it to you. I'll attribute it to the greater you or the, the divine and your guides, whoever put this together. And so maybe if you talk about that for a minute, and then the other thing, which was the, the honoring, the true honoring between the masculine and the feminine and what each of those roles could bring to the table, even in what history would consider primitive times. Oh, that's such a great question because um, Vespasian, who was the Roman general invading um, Britannia, um, is invited to a conference by, by Luke's father. Quick question. Yeah. Did you know Roman history? Did you know of Vespasian? Knew nothing about Vespasian. This is what's amazing to me. I went and looked <laughs> it up and I thought, wait a minute, Vest Vespasian was that character at that period of time. I've looked him up and I thought, wow, that came right through. I love it. Not only that, but after I wrote the story, I thought, okay, now we're getting pretty specific here about whether something actually occurred. So I Googled all sorts of documents about the history of England and actually got one from a bizarre, you know, esoteric archive that validated everything that was in the story, basically. Um, because I was ready to bury the thing if, you know, if it turned out that, that, that it was inaccurate. It's like, no one needs to know I wrote this. <laughs> it was accurate. Um, but the, the beauty of, of what transpires is Luke's father, the tribal chief, offers to sit down with Vespasian to talk about how can we move forward um, in a way that sidesteps constant conflict? Is there some, is there another alternative? And he takes Luke and Grace with him because he understands two things about the conversation he's going to have with Vespasian. One is Vespasian is going to evaluate him on the basis of the quality of his son. Who is his son? And does he embody everything that his father claims to be? Is there alignment there? Right. And, and he knows that, that Luke is the embodiment of that masculine integrity that needs to be so solid. And he also understands that Grace is her mother's daughter. She brings magic to the process. And she's relatively fearless and outspoken when it comes to calling Vespasian on some of the, the issues that he doesn't particularly want to address, which is so interesting because it almost feels like she's jeopardizing the, neg the negotiations. But instead, he looks at her and says, you are such a powerful, strong, articulate woman. We don't have women like that in Rome. She says, why not? because they're not allowed to be that way. And so that's how it all happens. That literally changes the course of history. Which, I mean, it's really beautiful because it's not as though she's just a plucky woman. These women have far sight, far vision. Those women that were raised in that cloister in the forest um, as healers all have 
pretty much the power of vision. So she can look into the situation and see what might be required and then support both parties involved uh, toward, you know, a clearer outcome, you might say. So she has innate value um, that hasn't been recognized really in patriarchal times virtually anywhere. So let's not give away the end of that story either. We're not going to give away the whole story. You kind of get, everybody's getting the thread and getting the kind of the trajectory and the plot. So let's go on to book number three now. And we're talking about hope, which is in what, 120 AD. And where the two find each other once again under really less desirable conditions. She is born the daughter of a Greek slave. Um, and he is the son of a Roman patriarch. He inherits the responsibility of maintaining the family legacy in terms of wealth and power and also position in the Senate. At that time, because, because Rome was ruled by wealthy families that wanted nothing more than to expand their wealth and power through marriage. Marriages were mergers, marriages were arranged. There was a law in Rome saying that if you were a senator, you could not marry a slave or even a freed slave. So they start out in these lifetimes under absolutely impossible circumstances. They cannot marry if he stays in the family, if he retains his position in the family, if he remains a senator. Um, she ends up being, uh, being transferred to uh, a, a household in Rome and they meet. And of course, the moment they meet, it's clear to her he, is, he doesn't want to see it quite the way as clearly as she does, but she basically says, we can, never, we can never marry. We can never be together the way we want to be. And he says, but I could leave the family, but, but we could live a quiet little life in the countryside. And she says, that's not what you're here to do. You are here to strengthen the Republic. You're here to be a voice in the Senate. And besides, I'm still a slave. There's, I have no idea that I would ever be freed. So those are the circumstances that they face. And the, the twists and turns of this story. You haven't read it all. Don't, don't tell I me. Won't say, I won't <laughs> say another word. Okay. But it just, you know, but that sets it up. It sets up the fact that these two marvelous people who love each other to the ends of eternity come together in a society that doesn't honor the love. Right. That doesn't, that doesn't value love. They no. they, the material acquisition is the basis of the culture. And as they're together, um, not together, but as, she ends up a cook. Now, what's interesting is she carries forth through, from lifetime to lifetime her deep connection to herbs, um, healing herbs and spices and aromas. And this is just woven into the fabric of her being. So it, it finds a way to express itself each time. And so I actually looked at that and I thought, have you, Gates, have you experimented with some of those herb and spice combinations and recipes yourself? No, I haven't. Good. I thought I, <laughs> I want to start because I cook. I want to start taking those and start playing with them and see what I could develop in this lifetime. But I mean, I, I thought about it. I thought, God, I don't know if Gates even knows how to use those together personally, but what a brilliant idea. It is brilliant idea. In fact, when I, when, I, when I read that, some of those passages about how she combines the spices and the flavors, it sounds so delicious. But honestly, okay, good thinking. I'm going to have to try that myself. You have to. Now, in this part, this part of the story, it reminds me of a book I just love. It was turned into a movie um, called The Mistress of Spices. 
And she was able to divine. There's another one called The Language of Flowers, a book that I adore, both of them. These are diviners of people's truth and past and entry into another person's being through, in this case, spices and how to heal. And another one, how to heal through flowers. So one is called, for anyone interested, The Mistress of Spices. And the other is The Language of Flowers, two wonderful books. And your writing really brought that in for me um, as a woman who loves these flavors and aromas and playing with food myself. <laughs> well, so, and what's so wonderful about the third book is that she's, as you said, she's a cook in the kitchen in this huge um, Roman estate. And he's invited to a banquet and he tastes the food and recognizes Yes. Recognizes. So there's something I recognize these flavors and asks for the, you know, the, the person who created all the flavors to, you know, to come out so that she can be honored by the guests. That's how they first lay eyes on each other, how he first sees her. It's through the flavors. He's got a memory of her cooking that that he carries throughout the lifetimes. Yes. Fascinating. I well, I absolutely love that. And, and I think it's interesting you put in here, after you wrote these books and you read them, after you read them <laughs> and started seeing what the story was, did you personally start contemplating the nature of twin souls, twin flames and love and in your through your own observation and your own life and some of your own life experiences, did it inspire that for you personally? It did. Uh, and I must admit that um, because I've been, I've been married, but I've been single for a long time. And what it did for me was it affirmed that if I'm going to uh, to have a relationship at this stage in my life, it I really want it to feel closer to what Luke and Grace are sharing, rather than accommodating something less than that um, in my life, just for the sake of having a relationship. Because honestly, I love my life as it is. Yes, and so maybe I've set up. I don't know, Regina, maybe I've set up standards that are almost impossible for me or anyone else to that's keep. A, that's a good yeah. point, Gates, because as I was reading these books, and then I have my, uh, my uh, assistant and friend Stephanie reading them now too, and Nicole's already read them, we were debating, it's so joyous to read, we were debating um, I want to put one of them up for my next book club. You know, I have uh, my Patreon book club and I wanted to put one of them up and I was discussing it with Stephanie and said, should we put up book number two or book number three? One is completely expressed love and equality. And the other one is unrequited love. Mm -hmm. Where, which way do we go? And we decided that the, exactly what you said, the fully expressed love might be so idealized that people struggle trying to contrast and compare themselves to it at this moment, instead of taking the long view, that it could even set up a type of deep sorrow and longing versus unrequited love in these times, people can relate to unrequited everything right now. You see what I, so you don't know this, but we've chosen the third book for our book club, the one having to do with the unrequited love because society wouldn't allow them to be together. But that's why. Do you think, did you have concern about that, that this was almost an impossible ideal? Um, I didn't have concern because we need to remember that yes. we are here ultimately to embody the divine masculine or the divine feminine, whichever gender we are, so impeccably that we, we are love every moment of every day as we walk the earth plane. So yes, I don't know that I would even call it idealized. I think that it is our divine imperative yeah. To, you know, to live that, to be that. We've just gone so far afield 
with um, how we've compromised even, we're not where Rome was in terms of how we think about relationships, but, um, but we've gone far afield from even imagining that a relationship where the, the, the male is, is the divine masculine most of the time and the female is able to be that marvelous creative potential that is in, inherent in the divine feminine. It's just sort of like, oh, that's impossible. Well, it's not impossible. No, it's we not. We all can do it. We all can. So I also have to say in terms of relationships, for me, my I have a lot of male friends and I can be, I can be really grace with, I mean, I'm grace with them, but we're not in a sexual relationship. Right. And so there's something, I don't know what it is about that either, but I'm, I can, I can be very uh, powerful in my relationship with men. It's just that I haven't found a relationship where I can be that powerful and be met by a man who is equally that way in his own power. I hear you. And I think a lot of women, because we're finishing up the patriarchy, um, hear the power in those words. And I hope the men watching this hear the power in those words to be able to allow a woman to truly be in her full true power um, and not feel threatened by it, not try to knock it aside, not try to dominate it. This is so deeply embedded within us for so many generations. It's in our DNA and we have to now, and that's what I love about the series of books. It shows us what we truly are, what we can move back into. So it gives a higher potential for each one of us. And the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, when people come back together in a twin flame status, so to speak, twin soul, twin flame, whatever the, a person prefers, um, they're not always as lovers. They can be as friends. They can be as family members, parents to one another, many different, many different forms. But that instant recognition and that feeling of absolute resonance would still be there. It's just not playing out in a sexual sense in that full masculine feminine potential, but it's still there. And I think, I think most of us can remember those feelings of, oh my God, I can relax. There you are, which is kind of looking in the mirror almost, right? I, I can relax around you. You're like me, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So now let's do a quick little look at book number four, because I haven't read it yet and I don't want it to be spoiled for me either. And talk about the trajectory of that story a bit, the setup. So interestingly, because the difficulties were so wounding for Grace in the third book, um, she incarnates by, her, uh, by herself or alone away from Luke for 1,500 years. It's her choice. She knows she needs to heal, and she takes responsibility to do that. In book number four, then it takes place in France in the late 1600s when the wealth, the, the decadence of the wealthy has, has just gotten so extreme um, and the poverty of those uh, of everyone else basically has also gotten so extreme. It's unfathomable. She, uh, arrives in France uh, uh, after having been brought up in a convent in, in Italy and grows up in this convent as well-educated and becomes, when she becomes 21, the decision about whether or not to remain in the convent or enter the real world uh, has to be made. She can't put it off. She can't d delay or deny any longer. Um, and she chooses to go out into the world, even though she really knows nothing about it. <clears throat> and the world she enters is this world of massive privilege on the part of the few and poverty on the part of everybody else. Luke is a count who has inherited a massive estate in Provence 
a huge, gorgeous chateau, and he can't stand any of it. He wants his desk to be two sawhorses with a couple pieces of wood across the top instead of all of the gilt and the extreme ways that this chateau is decorated. So that's who they are. They come together under these circumstances where he has set up, if I could at least say this much, Regina, he runs his estate like a democracy. He shares the profitability with everyone living on the estate. He provides education. He gives them an opportunity to learn a trade. So the children, if they want to leave the family and go elsewhere, they have a trade. He, this really is the epitome of a democratic, community-based, goodwill sharing way of life. And he does that even though everyone else with his stature, with his wealth, uh, lives a very different life. He can't, he can't bear how all of the other uh, people with his privilege have chosen to live. And um, so what do they do together in these circumstances? Don't tell me. Don't I won't, tell me. but Don't it's pretty me. wonderful. I, I, I'll tell you, I have to say, um, now this is revealing, and this is personal about myself. I have been into uh, a number of my past lives. I have some awareness. And probably one of the more uh, disadvantageous ones was during the time you're talking about in France, in privilege, not a life to be proud of. And I also had others that were certainly not that um, in France, but I spent a lot of incarnations in France. But I, I just have this feeling I, I, I got, I kind of got choked up as soon as you said, I didn't know that's where the book was and what was going on. I think it's going to be for people who have been there um, and people who watch from afar, that kind of gilded lifestyle, it'll be very eye-opening. So I, I look forward to it and I look forward to seeing how it was done with integrity, because certainly in the life I was in, people didn't act with integrity. Uh, it was very similar to the Roman situation you talked about. So um, I'm I'm very much looking forward to reading it. <laughs> Even if it brings back a few bad memories on one side, it'll bring back the beautiful potentials on the other. We're not those people anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so this is something, this trajectory between them, the one thing that comes through, as we talked about from the very beginning, was the persistence of the integrity, where most human beings at some point or another drop out of integrity for convenience or wealth or whatever, and then come back into alignment with themselves. We've Most of us have been through this journey of losing our way and finding our way back. And these two didn't, in these stories, lose their way. So if you want to just finish up on that. We're not going to give any more information about the books because I really want people to enjoy them for themselves. Uh, let's talk about that for a, a moment. I think that it all comes down to the power of love. Uh, when, when love is there, when it is real, when it is pure, when it is true, when it is just a, so much a part of one's soul, of one's being, that it feels like there's no other reality. Nothing else is real but that love. Then every choice derives from that. Every choice. You are so right, Gates. I mean, that that's it. That is the dividing and divining factor and the fact of these lives that you talked about of this corruption, both in Rome and in France, um, the, the large fact of it was because it was based on materialism, people did not connect nor marry for love, certainly not in the higher echelon. And life was so difficult for those in poverty, it was really hard to even do it there. It was not a focus to find your way to love, to be dedicated to it, and then perpetuate it throughout your life has not been a priority for thousands of years. <laughs> I know. 
I know. And you are not exaggerating. That's not hyperbole, Regina. It's true. We must find our way back to that. There is no other alternative, none, if we are going to come together as a global community. And that's really what these stories, these stories author, offer a path toward that um, and hope. They do, absolutely. I have to say, Gates, I just want to thank you again. I thanked you when we did Epic Steps together. I'm glad we had that conversation as I read through your manuscript of the first book. And uh, Susan, our mutual friend, Susan, was the one who put me in touch with you to begin with. And um, I, I, I know that she has already read them too. And so now we're becoming a group of people who have this wonderful, juicy kind of connecting connective tissue through your book. So we're going to be doing that in a few weeks time in my book club. Okay. We're going to be reading your book and anybody watching this right now, I highly encourage you to go uh, to Amazon and buy the entire set of them. Um, it, they're really life-altering in terms of uplifting of the spirit and showing us our true potential as human beings. So, Gates, thank you again. And uh, I guess we'll be seeing you. I'd like to invite you for the book club to come and join us. How Would you be willing to do that? I'd love to. Okay, good. And then um, that's for the Patreon community. And then I'm going to be bringing you to Gaia. And we're going to be talking about these again, but in a different way. We have a whole different set of philosophical questions that we're going to pose around these books. So, Gates, thank you. I love you to pieces, and I love what you've brought through. <laughs> thank you, Regina. You, you, you are in my heart always, always. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, everybody. You got four books here to read over the holidays, if you wish, if you've got some time off. And it's under there at Amazon under Gates McKibben, M-C-K-I-B-B-I-N, Gates McKibben. And uh, I just, I wish you a beautiful journey with these. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com.